an organization might be defined as a group of disparate objects in relationship to one another around a common theme. An organization, when it is people, comprised of a disparate group of objects, people, related around a unified theme, takes on a living quality. Unlike the organization that you have in your house on particular shelves or in particular drawers, which are inanimate and thus do not live, this organization lives. It's a body. And I love remembering that. The organization of the church, this disparate group that we are, which has come together because of our shared value of what God has done in Christ, this organization is a living being. It breathes and moves. You might liken it to a family in some ways. A family is also a somewhat disparate group of people come together over a shared identity. And like a family, this organization does not have some handy um, template for how it is that we relate to one another. There is no formula for how it is that we do this. I came to realize that in the family when Michael and I had just two children. And I had a rather deep conversation with a woman at a McDonald's playland. I was telling her how I couldn't understand how having two children was so much more than having just one. Gabriel was three and a half, Vivian was about one and a half. I had had one child, then I had two added another child, so doesn't that make two children? But why did it feel like so much more than one plus one? And she said to me, oh, you don't have two children, you have three. You have him, her, and them. That made a lot of sense. It was the them that was the surprise. You don't have much fighting when you're by yourself. You can't have tug of war over a toy when you're the only one. It was the them that surprised me. It is the them that surprises us, perhaps, as a church. I have heard people say, I can be a really good Christian by myself. But that's not what being a Christian is. We are a group brought together, a disparate group, brought together by our shared commitment to God in Christ. So we are an organization, a living, breathing thing. And this is what Paul is speaking to in his letter to the Romans. It's also what Jesus is speaking to in his teachings to Peter. Paul's letter to the Romans is written to a group of people that he did not found, this community of Christians, this Roman community of Christians. But he is addressing what it means for them to be a living, breathing organization, the body of Christ in Rome. And he reminds them that they are to welcome people in, but not in an effort to bolster their opinion on what it means to be the church in Rome. Some people think that to be a faithful follower of Christ, you must be a vegetarian. And so they welcome in their vegetarian friends to increase their number of vegetarians there in the church in Rome. And others say, no, because of the freedom in Christ, we can eat whatever we want. And they welcome in their meat-eating friends to bolster their number of meat-eating friends in the church in Rome. And Paul says, nuh-uh. This is all to the honor and glory of God. Some people think to glorify God is to not eat meat. Some people think to glorify God is to eat meat. Do 
what you do in honor and glory to God and let the rest sort itself out. Do not try to create sides or not give yourself into having sides in this community. Same with days of observance. Some people say, oh, this is a very high holy day and we need to do some very specific big things. Other people say, all the days are the same in the eyes of the Lord. We should do big things every day. And Paul says, do not divide yourself among which days you honor God and which days you don't. Let all days honor God. That is what we do together. And in Jesus' teachings to Peter in the Gospel of Matthew, he's addressing the same things. Peter asks Jesus, how many times must I forgive someone in the church? You might be interested to know that the passage of the Gospel that we read last week starts in the exact same way. Jesus tells them, in the church, Matthew's Gospel is written some 30-plus years after Paul's letter to the Romans. And the church, those following Christ, was a developing organization, a living, breathing thing. People were trying to figure out how to do this. How is it that we follow God and Christ? And so Jesus' teachings to Peter were written in a way that those first listeners could understand. What does it mean to be a follower of your way? How often do we forgive one another? Seven times? And Jesus says, 77, or in some translations, 70 times seven. Either way you look at it, it's a very big number. We are taught through both passages of what it means to be in community and how it is that we are to care to, with one another, even as a disparate group united around a particular shared belief. So conflict is an inevitable part, inevitable part of being a community. I gave you the illustration in my own household of toys among toddlers, and you no doubt know this as well. But sometimes it comes as a surprise nonetheless. And we wonder if conflict could really be eradicated from some great community, and maybe, perhaps, surely, the community of the followers of Jesus. What these two passages remind me of is that conflict is inherent whenever two or three are gathered. It's nice that Jesus said that whenever two or three are gathered together, I am in the midst of them. Because usually when at least two people are together, they have a differing opinion on at least something. So thank goodness that Christ is in their midst. You may have heard me say that when I first interviewed with this congregation more than two years ago, a Skype interview with the search committee, one of the first questions that was asked of me, if it wasn't the first, it may have been the second, but it was right there at the very top, was, how are you with conflict? I took a big breath and exhaled, and I said, I'm good at it. <laughs> and I know I'm good at it because I took a test. And it told me that I was good at it. There are a million ways, well, maybe not a million, but a great number of ways in which one can handle conflict. One can address conflict. And this little test told me that I'm pretty skilled at most of them. But I don't want conflict. It's not what I seek. Couldn't it be that every day was sunny, 72 degrees with a slight breeze? No, that's not what life is. And so when I was talking with a friend a couple days after that interview and she said to me, how did it go? And I told her, this is the question they asked me right at the top. And I said to her, is this my reward for being good at conflict? 
She could hear the weariness in my voice, and she said, why don't we have lunch? <laughs> and that's what I needed, her encouragement. Because conflict is inherent in any organization. We have differing views where a disparate group brought together around a unified peace. But still, we have some slight pieces that we really value, maybe in ways that other people do not. So you can imagine then my relief, my sheer feeling of relief, as if rain was washing over me from the tip of my head all the way down to my feet. You can imagine my feeling of relief when I was negotiating my contract and I was talking with the senior warden and I brought up a particular piece that was important to me but wasn't in the template. And he said, he confessed his uncertainty about whether or not this particular thing would work in exactly the way I had said it. But he said, if it doesn't, then we'll work it out. Oh, yes, we'll work it out. That's right, that's what we'll do because that's what we have to do. We have to work it out. We don't need to make sides and draw a line. We have to work it out because we're in community with one another. I still remember the physical sense of relief with those words. You know, we teach our young people how it is to address challenges and conflict in the world. And I know that there's a great emphasis placed on teamwork. And that definitely has a valuable place in our society. But teamwork comes with a certain set of assumptions. One is that the team is unified against its opponent. That's the purpose of a team. You are opposing the other side, whatever that other side is, and that is your unifying aspect. That doesn't always work in the world. Another key thing about teams is that you can put people on or take them off. And so if your team isn't playing very well, you can change people out. That can also be well-suited for some aspects of our life together, but it doesn't work for everything. It especially doesn't work for a family unit. We do not want to create our identity in opposition of another. That's not what we can do in all circumstances. And in a family, you can't take people out or put people in. And when people do have to make that decision about taking people out or put, putting people in, it is painful and costly financially and emotionally. So teamwork definitely has its place, but it does not prepare our young people for the variety of challenges and conflicts that they'll experience in the world. And as we know, conflict is inherent in community. It's just gonna be there. I daydream every now and then about how it is as a church we can prepare our young people to navigate conflict in the world in any host of ways, by support, by negotiation, by avoiding or accommodating the conflict, by working to compel someone to resolve the conflict or persuade someone. There are many ways to address conflict. Teamwork only touches on one of them, but the body of Christ gives us ample opportunity to practice it again and again. And so we are challenged in how it is that we can do that. Every church is challenged in this way. And every church has some of their quiet little conversations in the side or in the back or on the periphery about who's in and who's out in the body of Christ. 
What I have seen consistently in every church that I've served, and St. Stephen's is no exception, the two places where it stands out most prominently are in generosity, either of time or of money. I have heard in every church that I've served, people who give generously of their finances, say, well, I would give more, but I'm waiting for other people to give more. I have heard in every church that I've served, with people who are generous with their care for the needy, say, I give all of this to the needy, and I can't believe they don't give that much too. We look at the other and we judge them. And we say, how is it that you're not doing this? I thought a real Christian went all the way. A real Christian gave this much, at least as much as what I am doing. And so we can find ourselves frustrated and annoyed by one another, by one another's lack of demonstration of faithfulness. Perhaps that's what we need to forgive. I will say that this community, though, has demonstrated how it is to be a disparate body, unified around a core value, in a beautiful way, in the way that we addressed same-sex blessings last year. It was a year-long process of engaging the congregation on what to do about the freedom that was given to us by the church to act as an agent of the state in unifying a homosexual couple in the same ways that we have been given permission of the state to unify a heterosexual couple. Now, this conversation had started in the vestry more than two years before, but we took a whole year as a community to work through what we were going to do with this invitation or freedom, whatever you might want to call it. And as I had conversations and you conversed with one another, it became evident that not everyone was on the same side. There are disparate views in this community about what we should do. But what was clear among everyone was this was not and is not a defining characteristic of what it means to be the body of Christ at St. Stephen's. That what it means to be the body of Christ at St. Stephen's is that we work together as a community to honor God with all that we have and all that we are. That is it. And this was one part of that, but not the sum of it all. It's a wonderful example of how it is that we continue to be the body of Christ, even as the ultimate decision was made to act as an agent of the state should the opportunity come before us as a religious community. But our disparate nature is unified because of who God is in Christ. That's it. So here we have an example, an example in our own current life about how we've done this well. Perhaps our forgiveness really needs to come in our forgiveness of the other who is not who we wish they would be. We wish those people would give more of their time or more of their money, and they don't. Can we forgive them for not being who we wish they would be? We are encouraged in our passages of Scripture this morning to do that. Forgiveness is demonstrated through compassion, but compassion does not eliminate accountability. The trick is remembering that accountability is to God. So we encourage one another to think about being more generous in all ways and being compassionate beyond what we expected, not because you owe me or I owe you, but because we're all accountable to God. And we can say to one another, we long to be better at this because look at what God has done in Christ. Look at the generosity bestowed upon us. Look at God's forgiveness of us for not being who God knows we can be. God knows who each of us can be.
And yet, we even fall short. And God, in God's compassion, has mercy and forgives us for not being all that God knows we can be. So we are challenged to do the same. We are encouraged to give, to be compassionate and merciful because of the mercy and compassion God has shown in us, to us in Christ. That is what it is. That's what unifies us together. Paul reminds us that all of this is God's and that we are all God's. We belong to God. We are God's possession. The creator of life is the one who holds our life. That's the one to whom we're accountable. And he reminds us of this in his letter to the Romans. In about the middle portion of the passage that we read this morning, we see these words. We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. If those words sound familiar to you, it's because they're in our burial office, the very top of the service, page 491 in the Book of Common Prayer. We are the Lord's. We belong to God. All that we are and all that we have belongs to God. We are a disparate group, an organization unified out of our desire to honor God with all that we have and all that we are. We come together weekly to encourage one another in that. Because what we know, each of us deeply, is what God has done in Christ. And that's made all the difference. Amen.